Looking for a graduation gift to inform, inspire, and encourage? When you give a subscription to Christianity Today, you're giving redemptive, relevant news and thoughtful balanced dialogue about the church, current issues, and public theology. Visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to get a discounted student subscription for the graduates in your life. Starting at only $2 per month, this gift will engage and grow their faith throughout the year. Click the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to order now. is the Church Law Podcast, where you can get practical solutions for today's leaders. I'm your host, Erika Cole, the church attorney. Welcome back to the Church Law Podcast. I'm your host, Erika Cole, known as the church attorney. The size, scope, and impact of legal challenges facing the church in America today are a growing concern among pastors and church leaders. And I'm grateful that this podcast is here to be your trusted resource. Also, before we jump in today, into today's episode, which I'm really excited about, um, we have a special guest that you will absolutely appreciate. Um, I want to thank each of you that has reached out with a podcast question or idea. I want you to know that I'm getting your messages, that I'm excited to receive them, and I'm reviewing them. And you can anticipate that maybe we'll be able to provide an upcoming podcast um, based on your question. In any event, um, look forward to hearing back from me as I receive those messages and work through each of them. So today's podcast is on a topic that will not go away and is so important that every church is prepared to address. And that is child abuse prevention and abuse reporting in the church. My guest today is Matthew Brana. He is an attorney and the content editor for churchlawandtax.com at Christianity Today. He leads an award-winning team of editors and designers with the planning, creation, and publishing of churchlawandtax.com, and numerous print and digital resources. Matt earned his Juris Doctor with honors from the University of Denver Sturm College of Law. And prior to his current role, he worked for several years as a business reporter and business editor for a small regional daily newspaper in Colorado. He has won several awards for his writing and editing work throughout his career. And one of his favorite job duties is to interact with church leaders from across the country. Matt is, I'll just say from a personal standpoint, um, obviously a part of what he does in his role is he is my go-to person when it comes to content ideas and so forth for this podcast. And I'm really appreciative that he is here with us today. So welcome to the Church Law Podcast, Matt. Thanks, Erika. It's really great to be here. Great to have you. So this discussion today is a biggie. Um, Honestly, you know better than almost anyone that one of the most critical issues impacting the church today is this issue of child abuse prevention and reporting. Churchlawandtax.com has for many years provided insight into the areas that are most likely 
to arise in litigation for churches. So the top areas, each year you examine what brings churches to court and year over year, over year, we've seen that it's been this issue of child abuse. So I'd like to maybe start off by asking you, why is it that you think we see this issue come to court so many times? What are the facts within the area of child abuse that keep it at the top of the list for areas of litigation with churches? Well, that's a great question. It's probably answered a number of different ways. I think one thought that comes to mind initially is that within a lot of local church communities, there's always that sense that this can't happen to us, that we know everybody that's part of our church staff. We know our volunteer teams. We just could never imagine anyone within our ranks perpetrating this kind of activity um, against children. And that level of trust that's exhibited can unfortunately be abused and misused by someone who does have that tendency or that desire to harm children. And so I think it's just that sense of um, it not happening to us that oftentimes prompts many churches to overlook a lot of best practices that frankly could help them prevent it from happening in the first place. No, I think that's an excellent point. We've we've referenced this point of it can't happen to us. Um, even in a prior episode of this season's podcast re- related to church fraud, which is a whole other discussion. So we encourage listeners to go back and listen to that episode. If you haven't, we'll pop it in the show notes. But Your point, I think, is that by using best practices, we can do our best to mitigate harm, right? Exactly. Exactly. I think we, when we give ourselves a false sense of security, we tend to overlook doing a lot of basics that by doing would actually either discourage someone from taking um, advantage of opportunities or if they still try to take advantage of an opportunity, are much more likely to be detected. Yeah. Well, our discussion today, we really kind of broke into two parts. I think we want to start with the idea of abuse prevention, child abuse prevention, because ideally, as you suggested, we cut things off to the best of our ability so that the abuse never takes place in the first place. God forbid child abuse does happen. The second part of our discussion today is really about reporting and what happens next, right? How do we handle it if we become aware of some acts of abuse? So going from the idea of child abuse prevention, what would you say are some of those key facts for pastors and leaders to be made aware of? Off the top of my head, I would say two things. Uh, First off, there is unfortunately just in our society in general, a high prevalence of abuse. I think a lot of the research that's commonly referenced has noted that I think it's maybe one out of every three girls uh, will encounter some form of abuse in their lifetime. And one out of every four boys will encounter abuse. And so just at a high level, societally, this is a real problem. And if you're a local church leader, that means 
you might come into some knowledge about somebody that comes to your ministry that has been abused somewhere else. So that's something to kind of note. And we'll talk more about what that means when we get to the part about abuse reporting. But it just underscores the, the gravity of this problem, the significance, the prevalence of it. And unfortunately, along with that, we know, as you noted earlier, that churches have found themselves dealing with cases in their own ranks that have led to them ending up in court. And again, it usually is precipitated by the false sense of security that they give themselves, that they don't take the steps and measures and precautions that they should. They overlook things. And it opens the door for this kind of activity to go on. Rich Hammer, our, our co-founder and senior editor, he saw this coming back in the early 1990s. Um, I think, obviously, witnessing what was starting to unfold with the Catholic Church, um, I think it was Rich's sense that um, something similar was probably also unfolding within the Protestant Church. And that was what drove him to start the Reducing the Risk Abuse Prevention Training Program, which we still offer today through churchlawandtax.com. Um, unfortunately, it's been one of those uh, situations where he's been sort of a voice in the wilderness, um, trying to draw attention to this and, and make it a priority. And I think intuitively, everybody gets it. They understand that this could go on, but for whatever reason, it just doesn't rise to the level of priority that it should. And then consequently, something does eventually erupt and suddenly we're, we're finding ourselves in crisis mode. And that's reflected in that statistic that you noted that in the cases that Rich reviews year in and year out, cases involving uh, abuse allegations ranks at the top nearly every year as it has for over the last 25 years. That's a very scary concept. Um, I do want to just echo something that I'm seeing on the ground as relates to these cases and what I personally hear judges mention and what I personally experience as I work with churches and developing policies, et cetera. And that is judges are, they have a very short fuse, if I can say that right now, for churches that are not addressing this issue head on. Because judges watch the same news you and I watch. I don't have a TV, so I guess I don't watch that much news, but from what I do watch, uh, it's out there. There's no question about how much this is occurring and it's been happening year over year. And so there is an expectation from judges that churches have done the work. They've done the work to put policies in place, to have proper training, to set up the, the bounds as best they can to ensure the safety of children as they're inviting people into, um, into the church. So maybe I want to sort of move our discussion now to how churches can be aware of what the laws are in their states. Obviously, we're not here to give a, an outline of the 50 states of what all the laws are, but the fact is that these laws, meaning what child abuse is and the definitions around that and how it needs to be addressed are handled on a state-by-state -state basis. Can you speak to that a bit? That's right. And, and actually, you can find, for your respective state, you can find how it, how it defines abuse typically in what's called their mandatory reporter laws. And of course, we'll go into that a little bit later here in our program, but, but you're exactly right. Each state defines child abuse um, each state is naturally going to be a little bit different from other states um, because of any number of factors that go into how their state legislature um, ultimately 
passes legislation and, and that becomes law. By and large, I mean, there, there's a lot of commonalities. Child abuse is, you know, typically including physical abuse, emotional abuse, neglect, and then, of course, sexual molestation. And so it's just important that, that church leaders understand the scope of what abuse is and how it's defined. And then, of course, you know, who is a child? That's important to also understand. Obviously, that's typically someone under the age of 18 in most states. And so just, you know, being familiar with those definitions, understanding the scope is really important because as you learn about something, you have to immediately start thinking about, well, what are the facts here that are in play? And those facts then start to inform, well, what what does the law have to say about what we do in response to that? Mm -hmm. No, that's really good. And um, let's just continue down down that, that thread then as we consider the state's definition of what who a child is, the state defines what abuse is, um, the state also defines who is a mandatory reporter. And I wanted to insert a bit of a parenthetical here. While there are areas in which the court should not try, as relates to church operations, right? We've seen very favorable decisions from the court um, the Supreme Court, et cetera, in that regard. When it comes to child abuse, it is highly unlikely that the courts will not be involved, right? So I know it's sort of said a double negative. So said in the affirmative, if an incident of child abuse is reported, it is highly likely the courts will be involved. Yes, and the mandatory reporter laws reflect that. And so when you look at different states, what you'll find is some states say, well, a mandatory reporter is any adult. And I think that's just in a handful of states, but right there, that tells you a lot. You know, that's going to include someone who's a pastor. It's going to include someone who's a children's ministry leader. It's going to include um, an administrative leader within the church, just by virtue of them being an adult. And then in other instances, the state laws for mandatory reporters are very explicit in saying, we actually name the professions that we think need to report actual or suspected cases of abuse, and they will name clergy specifically. Um, so to your point, um, whereas in certain times and places and spaces where courts say, well, we're not going to really interfere in the activities or affairs of a church, in this instance with mandatory reporter laws, um, states are very direct in saying clergy need to be held to account and be involved with reporting this when they they become aware of a of an actual case or a reasonably suspected one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And maybe I want to dive into from here, Matt, the, again, the discussion of the best practices. One of the critical areas I have often shared as relates to child abuse prevention and reporting is having a well written child protection policy. I know that churchlawintax.com has some very helpful resources as well, but let's dive into the child protection policy. Number one, why it's important. And number two, maybe let's talk a little bit about what we would expect to find in a well-written policy. Well, you're absolutely right. I think um, a well-thought-out policy is vital for a church to adopt 
for a number of reasons. First and foremost, I think that the policies that we adopt say a lot about who we are. And if we're going to say that we're um, about delivering the gospel to all people, and with that, ensuring that their well-being is taken into account with that, then being able to communicate that kids matter to us and that we're going to have a policy that protects them, I think says a lot. Um, So just at a high level, sort of philosophically speaking, I think it's really important that a church have this policy to communicate kids matter and that they're part of that gospel reach. Along with that, I think that, and we've talked about this, you know, in in a number of other times and places you've talked about on the podcast with other guests, you need a well-crafted policy and you need to follow it. If you don't follow a policy that you craft, you can put all that time and energy into something that ultimately ends up working against you if, in fact, the unthinkable later happens and it comes to light that you haven't followed that policy the way that you said you would. Um, So I say that because if you're going to craft a a policy and you're going to spend a lot of time and energy crafting a good one, that's great. And then hold yourself to account to follow it. And by doing so, again, in our estimation, you greatly reduce the chances that something like this will happen. No, I think that's a really good point. You probably know this quote that I say all the time. is The only thing worse than um, not having a policy is having a policy you don't follow, right? So yes. um, I completely agree with your sentiments there. And I also just want to mention, as relates to a policy, having a child protection policy in place is that if God forbid an incident occurs, you don't want to waste time by trying to figure out what to do, right? This is not an example of where you want to be flying the plane and trying to build it at the same time. You don't want to try to figure out how to swim when you're pushed into the water, right? Like you want to make sure that you have done the hard work to make sure that you've adopted a salient policy that all the people who should be trained on the policy are trained on it, that the people on the ground know how to handle an incident if it occurs. Would you agree with that? Rika, I absolutely do. And and in large part because as you've seen uh, in your own service within churches and as an attorney that serves churches, one of the worst things that you can do is try to come up with something policy-wise with an actual incident already in play and all the emotion that that carries. And so when you can do it ahead of time, before an actual issue arises, you remove a lot of the emotion that comes um, when there is an actual case that develops. And when that case, God forbid, ever does develop, if you have that policy already in place that you you can follow, it gives you a little bit more of a neutral ground to be able to operate where you're, you're you're working with the policy and you're dealing with the case as it as it plays out in front of you, rather than trying to figure out what the policy is as those facts play out in front of you. Because that just creates, I think, even more emotion and even more difficulty for all parties involved. Agreed. Completely agree. And I, one other point that I think is important to mention here, we've kind of raised it, but I, I want to speak to it more directly. When we're considering who the policy, the child protection policy may speak to, or even who the mandatory reporting laws may apply to, 
this is not just a matter of employees of the church or the governing board or people on that level. Very well, we also need to consider and make sure that volunteers are often are also well suited to understand how the policy applies and what to do if an incident occurs. So if you have someone who maybe um, it may be a little more obvious if they work specifically with the youth ministry or children's church. You know, that might be very obvious. But this should also apply to maybe your hostess, right? If you have a hostess or an usher or whatever that might be called at your church, people who may not have a job title that's directly connected to church. What we know for sure is that if children are invited to the building, um, adults need to be prepared. To receive them well. That's right. It's it's a matter of understanding that anybody that's going to come into contact with children and youth, you need you need to know who they are. They need to be individuals that have demonstrated that they can be trusted when they're in regular contact with children and youth. And this may appear to be somewhat of an ancillary point, but I'm going to mention it because you, like me, Matt, might come into contact with dealing with issues once reporting is made. And um, sometimes the question comes out about insurance and insurance carriers and whether this is something that would be covered. And I'm certainly not going to cover out, um, color outside the lines to pretend that um, I can speak to <laughs> insurance, um, what an insurance rep might say. What I do know um, as, a, as a person, again, who's been in the room sometimes when these issues um, are being ferreted out, is that insurance carriers are likewise taking the position that churches need to have a child protection policy, a well-prepared policy that's in place and that's followed. I have found that carriers will deny claims where that has not been the case that carriers are now taking on this position. Is this something that you've seen? I feel like as I've read churchlawandtax.com, I have seen that issue arise. Yeah, that, that issue does arise, I think. Um, and, and along with that, I would just add, uh, for one thing, as a church leader, if you haven't become familiarized with your general liability policy, now is a really good time to do that. And, and in so doing, talking with your broker or your agent about whether or not uh, an allegation of sexual abuse or child abuse is covered under that general liability policy because oftentimes it's not and requires some kind of special coverage that's above and beyond what a general liability policy involves. And then along with that, I would just also add, when you become aware of the possibility that this has happened within your congregation, you probably have a very short window of time to notify your insurer to ensure that they can start to do the work that they need to do. It's you know typically known as a duty to notify provision within your policy. Um, so you you'll want to alert them to the possibility that this is um, unfolding, so that you don't eliminate the possibility of getting coverage later if you notify them too late. Very good point. Um, that I think points directly back to having the policy in place and having people trained on the policy so they know what to do. Many times these reporting laws require that there is initial notice made usually by a phone call to a specific number that may be a part of the hotline of any given jurisdiction. And you may have a short window of time to do that, usually like 24 hours. 
But then often that has to be followed up with a written report that sometimes is about 48 hours. I have been in the position where I've been contacted by a church a week or two later after a known incident because they're still sort of spinning around trying to figure out what to do. And at that point, you've blown past some of these critical timelines. So it really is, you know, I think we're both uh, just urging listeners to use this as a checkup for your church, the opportunity to sort of do that internal checkup to see where you stand as relates to um, child abuse prevention and reporting um, matters. Excellent points. And I would even add, there was a case that we became aware of, I think in 2015, in which, and it wasn't a church that was involved in this particular situation, it was a high school counselor. And they, the, this counselor was sentenced to a year of probation and they received a $2,500 fine because um, the counselor reported a sexual relationship between the school's volleyball coach and a player 14 days after first learning about it. And Arkansas requires reports to be made, quote unquote, immediately. Of course, they don't define what immediately means, but 14 days certainly did not fall within that definition. And so that's where that clock starts ticking and having the plan and having the policy known and in place in advance makes all the difference in being able to respond well. Very good point. Um, As we wrap up, um, maybe I just want to make this final point, um, which I think has been somewhat suggested, but I want to speak to it specifically. And that is that clergy shouldn't assume that they are exempt or that the, what some jurisdictions call the priest-penitent privilege or similarly named that indicates that because you're in a pastoral role or a ministerial role, you don't have a duty to report. We don't want you to assume that there's not a duty. You're almost in a better position to assume that there may be a duty and and might I say even beyond making assumptions, because my quote is, why assume when you can know? Um, So rather than assuming We'd want to make sure that you take advantage of the resources that we will provide in the show notes and that you take advantage of reviewing your state's child abuse um, laws and mandatory reporting laws. But it suffices to say that don't assume that the priest penitent or clergy penitent privilege applies because there is a strong likelihood that it may not. Any final thoughts from you on that, Matt? That's right. And and two reasons really for that. One is because it's not always clear that the conversation in which a pastor might learn about an actual case of abuse or suspected abuse, whether within their ranks or even if it's just somebody from the outside that comes into the church and they learn that a child may be abused or is being abused. It's not always clear that those conversations where that information is divulged is in fact privileged. There's very specific circumstances that need to be met in order for a conversation to be viewed by the courts as protected with the clergy penance and privilege. And then secondly, with that, whereas the clergy penance and privilege is focused on testimony that is provided in a court, um, it's not as clear whether or not that privilege applies to something related to a statute or a law. Mm-hmm. And so that's where that confusion or that gray area again emerges and it makes it difficult to say, well, you know, a pastor, because they feel like, well, maybe my clergy penance and privilege doesn't allow me to report here. That may, in fact, not be the case. Fantastic. Well, this has been a fantastic episode, and I'm really grateful, Matt, that you joined us. Thanks for all the information that you've shared with our listeners. 
And I want listeners to know that today's episode um, has been brought to you by Take the Next Call. It's a six-week live course where I help burnout pastors take the next step toward a life of more joy and contentment so that they can truly serve the Lord with gladness. You can learn more at takethenextcall.com. Today's podcast is brought to you by churchlawandtax.com and is a part of the Christianity Today podcast network. Subscribe to the Church Law Podcast to get each new episode and join us on this journey. Thanks for listening to the Church Law Podcast. We invite listeners like you to submit questions and comments. Send your email with the subject line podcast question to contact at takethenextcall.com. This podcast is brought to you by Church Law and Tax, part of Christianity Today's podcast network. This podcast is designed to provide accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is provided with the understanding that the host and the publisher are not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, or other professional services. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional person should be sought. Due to the nature of the U.S. legal system, laws and regulations constantly change. Listeners are encouraged to consult with legal counsel to verify the information provided here remains current. Visit churchlawandtax.com for more insights.